Welcome to the show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, including the cult hits Lucifer, Hellblazer, Transmetropolitan. And today we are covering Hellblazer issues 70 and 71. Yeah, that's right. But before we get into the show, there's a bit of Vertigo news this week. Yeah, it looks like they're putting out a recolor of Swamp Thing. Okay. This and is the, the, the iconic Alan Morris Swamp Thing run. Right. With pencils by Stephen Bissett and John Toddleben, mm-hmm. I think mostly. And the original colors were by Tatiana Wood. Okay. And you've seen these, these new colored pages. Yeah, a little bit. What did you think? I mean, there's the issue of what I think of the colors, and there's the issue of like what I think of the decision to do it, I guess. Right. The new colors are more realistic and look in many respects better. Yeah, they've added a lot more dimensionality, and they've replaced kind of, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not an artist, so my vocabulary, if you're talking about this, is kind of limited and bound to be a little bit wrong. Uh-huh. But they've replaced primary colors with, like, more realistic, earthy colors. Yeah, it's, it's much more muted. Yeah. And they did this with Sandman, they did this with The Killing Joke, which originally had really garish, like, pinks and oranges, mostly. Mm-hmm. And we talked mostly about the recolored issues of the Sandman, so I can't exactly say that I didn't like them. I don't like that it splits the fandom because people are now going to be buying the new colors unaware of the old colors. Right. Sorry, I'm looking for my killing joke. This is probably the old colors, right? This is very garish, so I think that it is the old colors. With Sandman in particular, we had called out that, like, crowd scenes looked much better in the new colors because they were more distinguished, whereas they had just been kind of a block of color before. I have to say, though, with Swamp Thing, I think Lurid is the intended effect. Right. And that's kind of how I feel about it. That's how I feel about this killing joke um, with the original colors. I think the art is very good. Mm -hmm. But let a comic book look like a comic book sometimes. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I just don't think that, I don't think that realism is what's called for. I think that that sort of pulpy quality, where it does kind of distinguish itself mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, it has a little bit of artifice and unreality to it. Yeah. I think that's what's, that's what's called for by yeah, the and, story. And, we are, and we are particularly talking about a run that is just like one step removed from the character's pulp horror comic roots. Right. Roots was not intended as a pun. Um, Ooh. <laughs> When he had just or just started to be remade as like a, a cerebral mythical comic. Right. So yeah, I think we're going to endeavor to get the original pages. <laughs> Not the original pages, but you know. We're going to endeavor to stick with the original art mm-hmm. and colors in our Swamp Thing coverage. Our eventual Swamp Thing coverage. Well... Yeah, not that eventual. We don't have that many issues of Garth Ennis Hellblazer to go. That's right. And after that, we are transitioning to Swamp Thing. Stay tuned. 
So right now, let's jump into Hellblazer 70 and 71. Speaking of Garth Ennis, Hellblazer. Indeed. Yeah, Garth Ennis wrote these issues. The art in them is by Steve Dillon. Colors in 70 by Stuart Chaffetz. Letters by Gaspar, edited by Stuart Moore, and assistant editor Julie Rottenberg. The cover is by Glenn Fabry. Right, and the credits for issue 71 are the same, except the colorist is Tom Zuiko. That's right. Do you want to talk about the cover to issue 70? Sure. We've got Kit Ryan sitting in a chair. She's looking out a window. She has a drink in her hand, which I'm guessing is wine, because there's a wine bottle by the chair. And floating behind her, there is an image, a phantom of Constantine. Yeah, and there's also a framed picture on her wall that appears to be of the pub that they spend most of this issue drinking at. Oh, yeah. So a little recap of what's come before in Hellblazer. John Constantine had a long-term relationship with a woman named Kit Ryan from Belfast. They got along really well, but John couldn't keep his weird mystical nonsense away from her. And so she broke up with him and went back to Belfast. He took it very badly and is currently a homeless drunk. Yeah, he's been sleeping rough. Yes. And that expression does not just mean not sleeping. Become an outdoorsman. (laughs) That's not exactly what outdoorsman means. (laughs) Well, it's the closest John Constantine is ever going to come. He was very bad at wilderness survival the time that we saw him do it. When was that? At the beginning of Fear Machine when he was living with the hippies. Oh, yeah, that's right. Fucked everything up for those hippies. So, Hellblazer number 70, Heartland. We open on Belfast Central Station. We are not following Constantine, but Kit Ryan. We are told that this is July 1993, and I have enough trouble with the timeline of this series. I wondered if that was a flashback. It sort of feels like a flashback, because in the previous issues, Constantine had been on the street for many months. Yeah. This seems like it's more right after Kit left him. Right, yeah, unless unless she spent a couple of months somewhere else before she came back to Ireland. At a stand, Kit buys 20 silk cut and a box of matches, which is John's order for cigarettes. Right. Kathy, someone says. This is Claire, Kit's little sister. And she asks if Kit's back for good. Um, I don't know. I suppose I am. As they walk to the car, Claire learns that Kathy is now Kit. This nickname apparently started with her ex-boyfriend, Brendan Finn, and stuck since then. Brendan Finn was the Irish warlock that we saw John get really drunk with and trick the devil. Right. Oh, were you his wee kitten-like? That's awful sweet. See you, you wee girl. Just drive the car, will you, you cheeky wee bitch? Kit! <laughs> Kit! Claire has a place in Botanic, which is a neighborhood where a lot of nurses live. It's sort of implied here that Claire may be a nurse? Yeah, I think so. She asks about John, and Kit replies, Frig him. Like that, is it? Here, tell us this. When do you start smoking? Good question. Now, Claire invites Kit out to the Crown Bar for drinks tonight. Peter and I would love to see you. That'd be brilliant. I could do with a good laugh so I could take my mind off a certain someone. Kit sits on the couch in Claire's place and falls asleep instantly. And looking at her, Claire comments, Kit! And now we get a full page of the Crown Bar and the title, Heartland, and the credits. This looks like a classy old place. Now, the Crown Bar is a real pub in Belfast. As one of North Ireland's most recognizable bars, it's frequently seen in movies and TV. It is also reputedly the most bombed bar in Europe. A hot spot in the Troubles. Do we need to do a brief summary of the Troubles and what they were about, or should we just kind of take it as it goes? 
what do you think people need to know for this comic book? Well, essentially like, from the late 60s until the mid-90s, and still somewhat to this day, although greatly diminished after the peace process in the 90s, mm-hmm. there was a ton of political violence in Northern Ireland between Protestant loyalists who wanted it to stay a part of the United Kingdom and Catholic Republicans who wanted it to be part of a unified Ireland. So there tended to be a political split along more or less the same lines as the religious split? Right. Okay. Yeah, and the essential part here is that this was still going on at the time of this comic book, and Belfast was a real hotbed of this kind of violence. Right. Here, what happened to the windows with all the stained glass and all? Got blew in by a bomb, says Peter, who is her brother. Stout tastes the same like. Listen to the old alky. I haven't been here in ages, right? There's an exchange here about a statue of the hookers round there in Amelia Street, which Kit jokes is the first time someone's ever made a statue to the people who got screwed. <laughs> As opposed to the people who did the screwing, yeah. And at this, Peter comments that uh, Kit was always the smart one. Mm-hmm. She's more clever than him and his other sister. They're expecting Anne, Sean, and Neil to join them later. Neil has apparently asked Kit out like 20 times. Yeah, everyone else is kind of related, I think. Is Anne also their sister? I believe Anne is their sister and Sean is her husband. Right. Yeah, so everyone else is family, but Neil is just kind of hanging on. And he has a big crush on Kit. But everybody is excited to see her back. Although he hasn't seen her since she was Kathy. That's right. <laughs> so as they make their way into the bar, we meet the other three. Anne is a big woman with red hair. Sean is a big guy with blonde hair. And Neil's a little guy with a black bowl cut. He's a professional taxidermist? Stuffing things. They got a dead sheep or something in, and old Neil's straight up it. Sean! It seems like throughout the issue, Anne's function in the conversation is mostly to uh, indignantly shout people's names when they're being vulgar. Mostly, Sean. <laughs> Not exclusively. Neil apologizes to Kit for missing her father's funeral. She replies coldly that so did she. Yeah, and Claire recounts a story of how Peter drunkenly knocked on the coffin at the funeral. And she says, Father Perry near shat himself. And this provokes Anne to shout, Claire! So it's it's not uh, just uh, John. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's lots of people. Yeah. Peter says Kit didn't miss much, but Claire corrects him. She missed Peter embarrassing himself. I guess he's saying knock on wood from Casablanca. Right, and that's why he was knocking on the coffin. Anne asks about Kit's London boyfriend. Neil is seen to take note as Kit says, Ah, there's not much to tell. She changes the subject to Sean and Anne's good fortune. Sean is apparently a landlord. So if you're buying this big house, you must be doing all right. Why, we're rolling in it. I own about 50 houses in Belfast now, renting them out, making a packet. I'll have to take you for a spin in a new motor like. You should see it. Toyota Celica. Two liter engine. Goes like a bastard. <laughs> Sean! <laughs> it's not a white Cresta, but we make do. Neil goes to get drinks. He offers to get one for Kathy, Kathy. a.k.a. Kit. When he is gone, Kit accuses Claire of trying to set her up with Neil. Flip's sake, would you credit me with some bloody sense? I better tell you, like, I think he is after you. Anne was saying he really perked up when she told him you'd be here, like. Kit asks about Claire's last boyfriend, Michael. Aye, well, it turned out Michael had a wee surprise for me. 
An extra dick? See you. Your mind's dirtier than mine is, Catherine Ryan. No, it was not an extra dick. Turned out the stupid glip was trying to get into the provost. I assume provost refers to the IRA. The provisional IRA, yeah. So he charged an army Land Rover with a gun. They didn't end up shooting him because his own gun exploded. So he is in prison, short two fingers and an eye. Sean notes, doesn't he get out next year? At which Claire makes a face. Peter changes the subject. There were apparently two guys from the same prison that Michael's in who tried to escape. They got over the wall, God knows how, but they had no transportation, so they ended up getting caught waiting for a bus. Yeah, they just jumped into a bus queue. Kit assumes that they were UFV. I think that's the Ulster Volunteer Force. Okay. Which is another paramilitary organization that was in conflict with the provisional IRA. Oh, okay. And then somebody else mentions that they were... Oh, no, they're talking about someone else. Some bank robbers who are trying to gather funds for the UDA, which is the Ulster Defense Association, I think, which is another, a third paramilitary group. Right. That was active during the Troubles. Peter comments that prods, which means Protestants, are buck-daft. Yeah, so the stupid criminal story reminds Sean of another stupid criminal story in which two guys robbed a bank and then tried to get away in the back of a garbage truck. Yeah, and they ended up getting crushed up, which is actually pretty gruesome. Yeah, oh yeah. It's the most Hellblazer-like thing that happens in this issue. <laughs> Peter says, funny all world, in it? Which annoys Kit, as that's an Englishism. Right, but the general theme of this conversation is that they think that Protestants and Protestant paramilitary groups in particular are pretty stupid. So we can gather from this that they're a Catholic family. That's where their loyalties lie. Yeah, and there's sort of an attitude here of, like, they maybe have a little bit of a side, and... How can I put this? Well, it's like, they have a loyalty, but at the same time, like, they think the guy trying to join the provisional IRA was an idiot, too. Right, yeah, they, they look on the whole thing with a, with a mixture of, of admiration and contempt. Something like they, that. They sort of yeah. have a side, but they but they seem to think that like that that getting involved with this violence tends to lead to stupidity, and it's just like it's just it's just something that goes on. Well, and like Kit with Constantine and his magic, yeah. you know, they want a nice life. Yeah, you know, they don't want to throw it away on violence and trouble. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. There was also a line here. When they were talking about the guy who, who tried to get into the provost, Kit made a comment about, Claire, I mean, made a comment about, isn't it amazing how you can be so close to someone and not know things like that? Kit starts to talk about John before the subject gets changed back to the IRA. They go up to the bar for drinks. Kit orders three Guinness, one Tuborg, a Bloody Mary, a vodka and orange, and a gin and tonic. And who's the G&T for, come to think of it? Uh, can you forget the G&T? Sorry. So, right? Yeah, so she habitually ordered John's drink, which she claims is jet lag. Aye, that's bound to be it, especially seeing there's no time difference between Britain and Ireland. <laughs> anyway, Claire goes to the bathroom, so Neil has to help Kit carry the drinks. I'm away to the loo. Here's Neil, I'll help you. Thanks a bunch. It's great to see you again, Kathy. It's nice to be back, Neil. Peter comments on a guy they know named Jerry. He's a panhandler, a con artist. Yeah, uh, we actually, they had a little encounter with him on the previous page that we kind of skipped over. Oh, yeah. 
But yeah, Peter says that he makes 30 quid a night. So he's doing pretty good. Right. Peter is considering going to the U.S. for the World Cup, although he says the Yanks are messing with the rules. Yeah, I didn't look into this. Do you know anything about a rules controversy for the World Cup in 1993? I didn't find out much about the rules controversy. The 1994 FIFA World Cup was in fact held in the U.S., um, and it remains the most financially successful and most attended World Cup in history, although Northern Ireland failed to qualify. Ireland made it to the first round of the knockout stage. There's quite a bit of further talk about football on this page. Yeah, and then somehow they get on the subject of Sean's mother's bra. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's last called, so Claire suggests taking vodka and coke to their parents' place. We'll go to the Manhattan after this, right? Have a wee boogie. And chimes in. I don't know, Sean. It's a bit late. Oh, for God's sake, woman, relax. Here, we joke. Why did the woman cross the road? Sean! Who gives a frig? Why wasn't she in the kitchen making my dinner? <laughs> Never a good Sean in these comics. <laughs> You've got a name that's reserved for bastards. <laughs> the sexist joke causes Kit to bump her knee on the table, which knocks a bright red drink into the crotch of Sean's white suit. That'll be the Bloody Mary, sure. Everybody tries to convince Sean not to drive drunk, but it doesn't matter, because some young hoodlums steal his car. No problem. We'll just get in, I'll drive us up nice and... Suck my dick, mister! Wait, that's not the right accent. <laughs> <laughs> Suck my dick, mister! You big fat shite, yeah. I'll get you, you wee friggin' bastards! <laughs> Peter deadpans. Of course, joyriding is a very serious problem in Belfast these days. Kit wonders why her sister married that wanker. At the Manhattan, Sean is wondering why he can't be let in. With drink all over his pants. And breath, too, I'd imagine. Yeah. I want in. I'm a bloody rich man, so I am. And I'm not letting you two dicks stop me. Watch it, you wee shite. You better piss off before I knock your bollocks in for you, son. Oh, I? Well, how are you going to hit me when you've got your fist stuck up your boyfriend's arse, you big friggin' fruit? Again with the politically incorrect jokes. He's a bad person. <laughs> yeah. He starts a fight with these two bouncers, and we just cut away to <laughs> Kit and Claire talking about the fact that he lost the fight. <laughs> what a hammering. I hope Sean remembers to dig his teeth out of his shite before he flushes it away in the morning. They've arrived at their parents' place, at the apartment where they grew up. Are we home? We've sold it, so we have. They're moving in on Monday. Kit says, do you remember him hitting her, the old bastard? He near bloody killed her. His own wife-like. I wonder if she's still talking about Sean or if she's thinking of their parents. Oh, I think that they're absolutely talking about their parents now. We had a hint earlier that she didn't get along with her father, and this is why. He used to beat up their mom. Claire says she doesn't know what would have happened that last time if Kit hadn't gone after him with a bread knife. We cut forward. The two of them are having drinks at the table. And Kit is finally talking about John. I mean, he liked me because he could relax with me, you know? He had this sort of front for everyone else, but underneath it, he was a nice fella. Or he was doing his best to be, anyway. Yeah, and she goes on to say, But at the end, right, when I told him I was leaving, he was saying things I never thought I'd hear out of him. He stopped just short of telling me he loved me. You've no idea what that meant coming from him. And? Well, I... Oh, I just wouldn't listen to him. You know what I'm like. And then he called me cold. And you ate the head off him. Why? And there's a knock on the door. It's three in the bloody morning, comments Claire. It's Neil. He confesses his love for Kit. Go on home, Neil. You're drunk. But... Go right. on. Right. Claire makes fun of this. Oh, Kathy, I love you. <laughs> and then she recalls a song that their mom used to sing while cooking. 
the Bell of Belfast City. Claire starts singing it. They sing it together. And then kind of Kit wanders off. And Claire continues singing in the other room while Kit looks out the window. Which, this is where we found her. This is the same posture that we found her when she was just about to break up with John. Right. Looking out the window is her introspective state. And she's reminiscing. She remembers someone, is this a John line? Saying, you shouldn't take any shit off anyone. I don't remember who gave her that advice, but she comments, Oh, John, maybe I should have. It's also the same advice that Jesse Custer's dad gave. Well, he said not to take any shit off of fools. Mm. You're allowed to take shit off of other people, I suppose. Makes sense. Let the wind and the rain and the hail blow high and the snow come tumbling from the sky. She's as nice as apple pie. She'll get her own lad by and by. When she gets a lad of her own, she won't tell her ma when she gets home. Let them all come as they will, for it's Albert Mooney she loves still. Yeah, Kit cries as Claire finishes the song. And the issue ends on a quote from Irish dramatist Hugh Leonard's play Da. The play is about a writer visiting his childhood home after his adoptive father's death, contending with their complicated relationship. And the line is, It was a long time before I realized that love turned upside down is love for all that. And that is the end. That is where we leave Kit. Yeah, sort of a capstone or an epilogue for that character. It kind of feels like we won't see her again after this. Yeah. That was an interesting Hellblazer issue. No mystical nonsense, no John Constantine. And it was much more naturalistic than almost anything we've seen in this comic before. Like, the pub issue has become kind of a ritual in Ennis's run. Yeah. Um, but this, this even more so than the ones we've seen, like, the dialogue is mostly just people chatting about whatever. There's very little focus to it. It's not until the very end that they even start talking about Kit's breakup with John. Right. And it really is just kind of random topics often jumping back and forth often with, you know, only a line or two on a subject before it gets lost in the in the rush. Yeah, I, I wonder how much this is intended as a portrait of Belfast. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a level where it's, it's Kit's relationship with this place and the people in it, contrasted with the, the world she just came from, the relationship she just came from. Right, and Garth Ennis is himself an expatriate from Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So he certainly has opinions on Irish history and the Troubles. Yeah. Irish history and Irish current events, I should say. Yeah. So yeah, it does take place in a famous Belfast landmark, and it does touch on what must be many of the topics of conversation in the place. Well, yeah, and we see crime. We see drunkenness. Yeah. We see panhandling. And we hear stories of, like, criminality that's even bigger and more dangerous than that. Yeah, well, and which is discussed with a kind of, I don't want to say cavalier, but acceptance? Not acceptance exactly, but, like, certainly acclamation. Yeah, yeah. So this issue takes place in 1993. The ceasefire would come the next year in 1994. Okay. And then the Good Friday Agreement was in 1998. So this is right 
Kind of at the end of the trials. Kind of at the tail end, yeah. Yeah. Although, as I mentioned earlier, there still are some like remnants of violent activity to this day. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I mean, I think it's a really interesting experiment and a, an impressive piece of writing. I can't necessarily say that I liked the issue very much because it was so lacking in focus, because there are moments where they seem to almost get onto the, the main subject and then just don't. It was kind of frustrating to me for that reason. It felt kind of aimless. I didn't have a problem with the aimlessness aspect because I knew what the... I could tell from the beginning that what this was going to be was like a, a Kit Ryan character study. Mm-hmm. You know, a portrait of Kit Ryan and her reaction to the breakup and Belfast and her reaction to being back there. Okay. And as I have mentioned before, like, I love Kit the character. I love that she's a strong and a well-developed enough character to carry an issue without Constantine. That her waltzing out of his life doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that her life has stopped to us. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I can't help a lot of the time but compare Kit to Tulip. Okay. And I don't think that... Well, obviously, Kit doesn't have nearly as much panel time as Tulip. Right. And so she's not nearly as well-developed, but she approaches it. Uh-huh. You know, she is a three-dimensional female character. And as much as I'm a John defender, mm-hmm. I often feel like his guilt is misplaced yeah. and that other people's blame on him is also misplaced. You kind of can't help but side with her in this conflict between them, you know? Yeah, I mean, she set the condition for for what she wanted her life to be like and he could not meet it. <laughs> yeah, and instead she got two <laughs> National Front guys with knives. Yeah. <laughs> breaking into her house to to rape and kill her. If they could. Which they couldn't. <laughs> oh, man. That was great. <laughs> and she does say something in this issue about you, you can't beat a bread knife. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that brings us to Hellblazer number 71. Finest Hour. The cover... Features a skeleton in a pilot's helmet and mask, and he is clutching the wheel. The broken down, decrepit, you know, sort of also skeletal wheel of a fighter plane. Yeah. We also have a pattern of fighter planes in the background and a bullseye, which is what was painted on the side, we will see. Uh, I think it's called a yoke. He's holding the yoke, not not the steering wheel. Planes don't have steering wheels, Eric. (laughs) Close enough. We're back in London, and it is after New Year's. Remember, we had a hint that John's big plan was supposed to go off after New Year's. I think that was after the last New Year's. Oh, has it been a year since it was? That's the thing. (laughs) Goddamn it. You turn your head, and it's been a year in this comic book. Because they did that plan. They did that plan where they got Gabriel. I guess they haven't got the first of the Fallen yet. They haven't got the first of the Fallen yet. So maybe this is still the same New Year that he was... Well, in any case, at some point in this comic, we're going to find out it's been six months since the breakup. Six months that he's been sleeping rough on the streets. Yeah. And he, as we see in this page, has actually made his way away from the city. He's gone up the river. Yeah, remembering how far he's fallen since last New Year's has made John especially depressed. Trafalgar Square was lights and crowds, and I looked down the neck of a cheap bloody whiskey bottle. Where last year it was deep green eyes. And I cried my friggin' heart out. That's why he's wandering out by the river here. And he realizes 
Then I sing a song the green eyes taught me, and I remember raven hair and skin like snow at sunset, but you know, for the life of me, I can't remember her name. He's singing a song as he wanders around. The song is The Mountains of Morn. And we see a bottle of methylated spirits in his hand. Oh shit, he's hitting the meths! He's fallen that far. This was hinted a couple issues ago that that was a thing that people eventually came right. to, and now it seems to have happened. Yeah, and they're, they are making him pukey. Yeah. He's puking, and it looks like there's also blood coming from his mouth. Yeah. He recalls Davy, his friend that got killed by the King of the Vampires, and his words that if you're the lowest form of life, at least you can't go any lower. Yeah, but John Constantine learns there's no basement in hell. Yeah, that's right. That's the Cassidy line. But you know you were wrong, Davy. There's always one place lower you can go. And he settles down here against a riverbank, and we see that over his head is a skeletal hand. Yeah, he's just laid down inches away from a skeleton that he didn't notice. A skeleton, if you will. A skeleton. There's a whole skeleton here. But John just bleeds from the mouth and passes out. Yeah, and when he comes back to consciousness, he is piloting an old fighter plane and he's about to pilot it right into the steeple of a church yeah he finds himself in a dive he manages to pull up just clipping the top of the church and then he realizes who and where he is yeah and in fact he refers to himself in his narration out you bloody well go jamie boy jamie kilmartin 1922 to 1940 never slept with a woman and two kills to his credit r.i.p how could I have been so stupid? They told me a million bloody times, too. Watch your back. Always watch your back. And I'm closing on a stuka without a care in the world, forgetting everything but getting the bastard in the gun sight. And then the mirror's full of Messerschmitt, and the hurry's shot to bits around me. He's identified the plane there as a Hawker Hurricane, which was an RAF fighter that really did have these bullseye symbols on the wings inside. He's also mentioned in his eulogy for himself that it's 1940. And he remembers, and... Apparently, Constantine remembers with him a conversation that he had with his colonel, Squadron Leader Grant. He found Grant getting drunk under his plane, and Grant says he does this every night, thinking about the ones who didn't make it back. And not a bloody thing I can do about it, either. Well, it's, it's something we all worry about, isn't it, sir? When old man Death's gonna come calling. What? Uh, I mean, well, you know what I mean, sir. It's not something that can be helped, is it? You just accept it, don't you? And you get on with it, sir. You stupid little bastard! Shut up! Do you know what you're talking about, Kilmartin, do you? You don't accept death, you don't humanize it, and it's not your frigging friend. Old man death, listen to yourself. I've been with this squadron since France, boy. I saw ten of my men go down to those yellow-nosed bastards. I saw death. It's not your friend. It's a twisted, coiled, ugly little length of dog shit, and you fight it to your last bloody drop. Otherwise, you're nothing. Otherwise... Why did you even bother in the first place? Yeah, that's a long speech that we had to read all of because it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very good and it's like, <laughs> it's like, here's the theme of the issue. <laughs> yes, very much so. I do want to point out that Death is not an old man or a lump of dog shit. She's a pretty goth girl. Right, canonically. Jamie has been wondering what Grant meant since, but now, facing Death, he sees what Grant meant and he makes the choice. It's simple. It's a choice. I want to live. She's a mess, no doubt about it. But if I nurse her, take it nice and easy, I'll make Hornchurch in ten minutes. Thames will be coming into view soon. Christ, maybe the bloody undercart still works and I won't even have to pancake. I want to see the lads again. 
to drink and laugh with them, to kick death down with youth and jokes and joy, to push this beautiful, beautiful, bloody airplane halfway to heaven, where the sun melts gold across the sky and the clouds are castles out of fairyland. And he recalls a friend who, before he died, asked Jamie to take care of his dog. I can't die. He'll take care of poor old Tigger. But two minutes later, the Thames is snaking away like a tempting dancing angel, and I know I'm not going to make it. He hears the engine's death rattle, but he reminds himself not to surrender, to fight to the last drop. And then she's a glider, and then a stone. Don't give in to the last bloody drop. The plane hits the ground, nose first, on exactly the spot where Constantine is now sitting. Right, he almost made it to the Thames. He crashes on the bank, and that's where John found him, or failed to notice him. John wakes as if from a nightmare, sees the skeleton. He is actually face-to-face with the skull. Oh, bloody friggin' Jesus, get off! The arm is now thrown over John, which is a bit creepy. I actually like how the arm is draped over him, how John is literally throwing off the embrace of death. Yeah, that's pretty cool. This is a very kind of old ghost story type story in that we don't even know if he is completely dreaming or if he actually has, like, a window into these events. I mean, I'm reading it as a supernatural story. Oh, yeah, this vision is totally supernatural in nature, I think. And I think maybe the the thing that best confirms it is that the skeleton does appear to have moved since he passed out. Right. Once he gets up, he calms down some. He digs a bit and he finds the plane. And then he looks back over the river at London. And then we find him on the London street where he does a bit of magic. Yeah, he looks this Mr. Banks-looking guy in the eye, and this guy is suddenly compelled to give away all his cash, checks, and credit cards. Ah, oh, pardon me, but, uh, I've just had the strangest urge. <laughs> but this is my favorite part. Oh, but how remiss of me. You'll need to sign the checks, and they won't accept your signature. It's all right, mate. I'm sure I'll have no trouble forging yours. That's a relief. Well, how splendid. Best of luck, then. Yeah, and the next thing we see, John has got himself a place... He's got a suit of clothes, his typical uniform. He showers Um, and shaves for the first time in months. He's got a brand new trench coat and suit waiting. He's about to look like beginning of the story arc Constantine again. All my life, one way or another, I'd always thought I had it all worked out. Even how to die. How to give up and pull the great black blanket around me, finally admitting, yeah, it's too much. I can't win. I quit. And then I was tangled in the wreckage of a war fought 50 years ago. Dreaming a dead man's final moments that were blowing on the breeze of history. And then I knew I was wrong. Now dressed, he's back on the banks of the Thames and he's digging a grave for Jamie. Now he says he's done with the past. He's burying it. You never gave up. You knew the precious thing you had and you scraped and clawed and fought to the last drop of blood for life. And I think I owe you something, mate. He's been off duty for six months, he thinks. He's got things to do. And he heads back for London. There's always somewhere lower you can go. But if you do, why do you even bother in the first place? And now we get a vision of Kilmartin. Back in that golden sky. Yeah, his hurricane now shiny and intact. He pulls the hurricane clear of the dive and laughs with joy and leaps towards the sun. Uh, We get a full page spread here of the golden sky and the clouds and the fighter plane headed upward defiantly. And that's where we finally get the title. So, that was interesting. Yeah. 
I guess it's kind of surprising that the issue in which John metaphorically and literally pulled out of his dive was kind of a one-off. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think that this is part of any greater scheme. You know, I don't think that this is a vision sent to him by the powers that be right. to snap him out of his funk. I think that he found a haunted place and that the sort of ghostly vision that he had there just happened to be what he needed. Yeah, that happened to be exactly what he needed. It's supernatural, but it's still random. It's not fate. Yeah. I mostly enjoyed this issue. I thought it was very good. Did a really good job of getting us into Jamie Kilmartin's head and his um and his his world. His voice and his milieu. I really sort of expected what pulled John out of his funk to be more of a more of a big story arc thing, to have one of his enemies show up and try to destroy him and he would have to regain his mojo to fight them off or one of his allies would come and pull him out of it i really kind of wanted to see ellie come along and be like you asshole i have taken incredible risks for your plan you're gonna execute your plan (laughs) yeah but we tried that you know when kev showed up yeah right exactly the king of the vampires showed up and tried to destroy him and he cheated death only by the skin of his teeth and it didn't snap him out it didn't make anything any better yeah you know he killed the king of the vampires and all it did was bring him lower in sort of viciousness and revenge. Yeah, and that was what was really effective about that issue, was how defeating the King of the Vampires didn't solve any of his internal problems. Yeah, it's interesting, a juxtaposition between, like, a winning fight that was not sufficient to snap him out of his funk versus this, a losing fight that was. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think these issues are really interesting taken together as well. What we have here are two issues about John and Kit each facing the past and deciding what to do with it. Kit considers the world she's returned to in Belfast and wonders if she made the right decision leaving John, but she decides to live with what she's decided. John's story doesn't deal with Kit really at all. He's almost forgotten what drove him to despair. He's so deep in despair. He's wallowing so thoroughly it's self-sustaining. But here he faces the past and decides not to let it control him anymore. Right. I think they make a neat set for that reason. Yeah. It's interesting how, like, all he needed to get out of, like, physically to get out of the situation of living on the street was a glimmer of magic. Just, you know, a quick little trick that he could do in his sleep. Right, yeah. He he always had what he needed to get his life back in order. If he had the Other will to do it. Money. <laughs> Other people's money. Other people's money. He's He's very... <laughs> he's either very lucky or very magical when it comes to getting money, and that's something we've seen before. Right. So this is this is actually one of the first times that we've sort of explicitly seen him use magic to remedy his financial situation. Right, yeah, we were told many, many times that he was a magical con man before we ever actually saw him do it. Well, that wasn't really conning. It was straight up brainwashing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was really amused by how gracious that old man was. That was, yeah, that just, like... <laughs> Can you imagine if people really did that for homeless people? <laughs> Yeah, I can see you're homeless. Here's all the money in my wallet and my bank account. <laughs> Got a Constantine moment? You know, I, I have to go with, again, just getting that old man to graciously hand over all his cash. Yeah, that's a really that, fun Constantine that moment. That posh sort. <laughs> I think that has to be mine as well. Uh, that's sort of the first time we've seen John really having fun in a few issues. <laughs> right. So what's next? 
Well, we've got an annual coming up, or rather a special. This is Hellblazer special number one, confessional, in our next Hellblazer show. But first, join us next week as we launch into a new series with the debut of Transmetropolitan. Summer of the year. Vertiguys is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. We covered the entire runs of Sandman and Preacher, so check it out. Yeah, there's pictures of good records there, too. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, the email address is vertiguys at gmail.com. Please send in questions. Send in topics you'd like to hear us cover. If we're not covering all the things you want to hear about, write us a little note, let us know, and we'll try to address the discrepancy. Right. You can reach Eric on Twitter at Vertiguys. You can reach me at BlankCastSean. And hey, we have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Vertiguys. Yeah, which I don't update often enough, but (laughs) (laughs) I'll make sure to get on that. Leave us a positive rating and review on whatever podcatching software you use. If you leave it on the Apple Podcasts app, and it's a positive review, we will read it on the air. And, you know, tell your friends about the show. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. kind of almost playing it video game style where it's like that's where we go so let's go there last (laughs) right yeah maybe which is like when i was playing deus ex and all the time i used to be like well before i go do the quest i think i'll just see what's in this sewer oh it's a secret mj12 face (laughs) (laughs) right yeah and there's like a moment where they come to a town and the gm has to think of an npc name quickly on the fly so he names him tom bodette and then proceeds to name every other npc in town tom bodette and it's just it's a town of clones of Tom Bodette. The electricity bills are just off the charts. <laughs> That's a funny joke. <laughs> <laughs>